Coming up today, Grace explains the monkeypox vaccine delay and Matt Burgess on Facebook's European data problem. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host Amit Katwala and joining me this week are Grace Brown, hello, Matt Burgess, hello, and Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Disney overtook Netflix as the biggest streaming provider in the world. It now has 221.1 million subscribers across its Disney+, Hulu and ESPN Plus platforms, while Netflix continues to shed customers. It was also the week when fast food giant Domino's announced it was pulling out of Italy after seven years, as its American offerings failed to win over the birthplace of pizza. It was also the week when Google sparked fury amongst some users by issuing a redesigned inbox which features giant off-centre buttons. And finally, this week, Elon Musk sold off 7.92 million of his shares in Tesla, which is worth around £5.7 billion. Musk said he needed to sell the shares in case he is forced to buy Twitter for £44 billion. Sad news about Domino's. Devastating. I is can't it believe- devastating? Well, I mean, I know you get like wood-fired authenticity, but what about garlic and herb dip? I can't believe these talents went into I that. I know. How are they surviving without that? Shocking. All right, let's move on to fun facts. Uh, Natasha, what is this? So um, this is a fact that Matt Burgess has forced me to bring onto the <laughs> podcast, which I casually dropped into our conversation the other day and now heavily regret. Um, this is about a famous historical figure, uh, which is a, one of the greatest horses of the 18th century. And this horse had a name, and I will now spell out the name for your entertainment. It is P-O-T, and then it's O-O-O-O, and you might think, what's that? But no, it goes on. O-O-O-O, right? And it's potatoes. Right. Potate-eight-O's. That's great. And you might think that's stupid. And it was. Um, this, is a, this is a very important horse that was bred by Willoughby Bertie, who was the f- fourth Earl of Abingdon. I know nothing about Willoughby Bertie at all, but I do know something about potatoes. So the story goes that a stable lad who misunderstood the horse's name broke down the word potatoes into pot plus eight O's. So the horse's feed bin sported the name potor, which gave all the boys a good laugh. And apparently also amused the Earl of Abington greatly. The horse actually ran under the name Potor for a few starts until it was finally shortened to potatoes. And yeah, this apparently was a very famous racehorse and sired many a horse. And the lineage was traced back by the website, something I think it's called horsenation.co.uk. <laughs> so it is verified. Just a I- reminder that you are listening to the Wired podcast, <laughs> your essential <laughs> weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. <laughs> uh, Grace, you've also got a fact. <laughs> um, so continuing the cheese theme from last week, um, I found out that cheese actually existed before written language did. So the earliest direct evidence of cheese making was found in ancient cheese strainers that were found in Poland um, that are over 7,000 years old. And uh, written language came about about 5,500 years old. That's actually pretty fascinating. I, I, that, is, that is really, really interesting. Thanks. I wonder how they passed it on without written language to codify how they yeah. made the cheese. In, in other interesting cheese facts, after our discussion last week, uh, Grace, you tried a baby bell for the first I time. I ate a baby bell. I didn't eat the wax like I thought you were supposed to, <laughs> so that made it much better. And I told Mapper just that I give it a 7 out of 10 when I'm on the go and I need a snack, but a 5 out of 10 overall. Yeah, it's quite drying, isn't it, as, mm-hmm. a, as a cheese? 
I'd just like to add as well that we were recording this in the office today and Grace brought in baby bells for everybody, which was just a very nice gesture. And it, I think that also means we're like, we just need another 900,000 to be able to make a house. With exactly. all the wax. Yeah. You know, housing crisis. Yeah. This is the only way I'm going to be able to get a house, guys. I will say in 37 degree weather, baby bells, maybe not the ideal snack, but uh, <laughs> it's very, very thoughtful gesture. Also wanted to say that, do you think the first written language was do not eat wax on the, on the, <laughs> yes, on the exactly. ancient cheeses? All right, let's move on to our first story this week, which is about Facebook. Natasha. So for several years, Meta has been warning that it might have to leave Europe, which would mean Facebook and Instagram would stop working on the continent because pesky European politicians keep trying to stop it from sharing data between Europe and the US. Now, while this Meta exit is unlikely, the legal cases that this is based on are reaching ahead. Matt Burgess, you've been looking this week at whether there'll be a Facebook blackout in Europe. Tell us more. Okay, so this is something that is relatively complex, but is actually quite important for the grand scheme of things. So the idea of Facebook leaving Europe comes from a data protection complaint against it. Like that started, that complaint started nine years ago after Edward Snowden's revelations of uh, US spying on people everywhere. Um, And a complaint was made to the Irish data regulation regulator, which looks after Facebook. And the complaint essentially said that the data from the EU that's sent to the US doesn't have proper privacy protections. So in short, US laws allow the NSA and other intelligence agencies to snoop on people's data that's sent across the Atlantic by big tech companies. This complaint has been going on for about a decade now and has resulted in two major court decisions saying that data being transferred from the EU to the US isn't legal. The first of these was in 2015. The second was in 2020 against a uh, legal mechanism called the Privacy Shield. Um, And now the Irish regulator on the back of these decisions is about to issue a decision in the original Facebook case. This is expected to say that Meta can't send EU data to the US. Uh, Meta knows about this and it's uh, and th- that it's a risk to its company and how it operates and how its ad sales and everything works. Um, so since 2018, it's been warning that any decision could result in it not being able to operate in the way that it does in Europe at, at the moment. So let's briefly break this down because when you when you say that European data sent to the United States, it kind of sounds like Facebook doesn't have any data centered in Europe, which is not true. It's just that it likes to send different data to different locations depending on how they want to manage it, right? And so I suppose this decision, would it mean Facebook having to build a load of new data centers in Europe? Is it likely that, that Meta will just say, no, we're not going to do that. Sorry, we're going to exit? Potentially. So... Um, Where we are at this at the moment is at the start of July, the Irish Data Protection Commission uh, issued a draft decision that would block Meta from sending uh, data across the Atlantic. While the specifics of that decision aren't actually known at the second, if it is enacted, it could create this idea of a Facebook blackout across Europe. It wouldn't potentially be able to operate. Um, Other data regulators at the moment have got like 30 days to look at that. And that period has just come to a bit of an end. And we know that some of those have got some issues with the decision that's been made, uh, which could drag out the process. Um, But overall, it seems like this decision will happen. It's just a matter of uh, how much of an impact it may have on Meta and some of the specifics at this second. So Meta doesn't really want to leave Europe. It's a major market for the company. Um, what can it do at this point? Yeah, so Meta has said that it's got no desire to leave the continent, going as far as publishing a blog post titled Meta is absolutely not threatening to leave Europe a few months ago when some of these stories first started appearing about the company. But uh, obviously, uh, Europe and its 30 plus countries are a huge market for Meta. 
millions, hundreds of millions of people use its products and services across uh, the continent, and even stopping them temporarily could come at a pretty big cost. So while Meta may not leave Europe, it potentially still has to deal with the consequences of this decision from the Irish regulator, and it may have to make major changes to how it stores or transfers data once the final decision has been published. And people have given you some examples of what Meta could do at this point. So if the if the European politicians tell them they must, you know, create loads of data centers or else <laughs> stop using stop using their services in Europe, what what could Meta do? What what have people said that could be their options? So one thing that we do know is that um Meta has data centers all, all around the world. It has a bunch in the US, it has some in Singapore, it has some in Europe already. Um, but the consequences of this potential decision could be that uh, Meta may have to look at keeping user data in those for European users in those European data centers. And essentially, if they want to keep operating in the EU, this might be something that they have to do. That would essentially mean that Meta may have to create more of its own data centers in the EU. It might have to stop data from being able to be sent from one data center to another, e.g. from the EU to the US. Um, and uh, some of the other people that I spoke to also said that it could employ more encryption upon the data that is stored in the EU to make sure that it isn't sent out 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 wide um, and really this all of the measures that it could take to try and fall in line with this potential decision could be quite costly to it could involve a lot of building could involve a lot of resource and infrastructure and we've seen as as well previously when meta in the last couple last year or so has tried to build uh, out more data centers in some parts of the eu there's been opposition to it locally and um, really this could be a bit of a headache really how long would meta have to sort this out realistically speaking because it takes i remember reading one of morgan's stories from last year it takes around 10 years potentially to build a really big data center that's a long time um how long realistically do you think meta might have to to make these changes so if it has to make these changes which is obviously the big first point still um then it could be well it, it could be depending on the decision. So there was recently another sort of like GDPR case in Europe that said that another company uh, had to make changes to its services, which were actually software based, so quite different, but it gave it six months to sort of come up with extra solutions to this. So I think that for regulators, if they were deciding on this, um, they would potentially put some sort of stipulations into their decision that says that maybe Meta has to come up with a plan in the next few months and then start implementing it afterwards. But as I say, we don't know the exact specifics of the detail at the moment. We we just know that the big sort of overlying uh, sort of case decision on this is going to be that it's likely that it's going to say these transfers have to be stopped. And until then, all of the data that Meta wants uh, to take from our profiles on Facebook or Instagram uh, would just be shared however they like, right? It's up to Meta to do what it wants. But but this isn't just something that affects Meta, right? This is something that affects a lot of um, different companies that keep their data and you know process their data in different locations in the world. We've been talking about the balkanization of, of data for a long, long time um, at Wired. And it, this feels just like the, the sort of the piece resistance, right? The, the, like, the latest thing that, that it would just make everyone just change the way that they completely operate. So how will this affect the wider market? How many data centers will other companies have to be building in Europe to fulfill the potential data transfer um, policy? 
and this is yeah this is why we are sort of talking about this here as well because of the wider implications that this has on um global businesses economies etc with transferring data across borders like the free flow of information whether that's sort of like business information or maybe more social media stuff is actually incredibly valuable it's worth billions of billions of dollars every single year and it, this type of decision can have a bit of a knock-on impact so meta is the most high profile case here but this issue affects uh, all of the big tech companies that move data from the eu to the us and by extension it impacts the businesses that use those products of, of those tech companies so thousands of businesses rely on microsoft teams or uh, amazon's web services google's email etc and they all essentially could be in breach of gdpr under this type of decision and we've we've started to see other cases emerge on this as well based on those um couple of um uh, rulings from the european courts that data couldn't be transferred in this way so in, so since january of this year multiple european data reg regulators have ruled that companies using google analytics which is google's traffic monitoring service for websites falls foul of gdpr and danish authorities went even further saying that schools can't use chromebooks without restrictions being put in place because there is that data being potentially transferred to the us so basically there's a lot of legal uncertainty for businesses here that are just operating and trying to um really go about their their actions it's an awkward situation right because you've got big us companies um that operate around the world basically being told we don't trust the us we don't trust you with our data we don't like that you have our data we want you to stop um i, I guess this becomes a more political issue right so is there any way that the political scene at the moment in the united states could help meta out in this scenario yeah, so Meta wants a political scene uh, to, to make a decision around this, as do other sort of big tech companies. And there is one proposal that's in place. So um, earlier this year in March, uh, Joe Biden and uh, European Commission President Ursula von Leyen announced uh, a new transatlantic data privacy framework which will change the way that data is sent between the eu and the us so you remember those two uh, cases earlier that i said have been struck down by european courts they've come up with a new proposal that will essentially replace them um, and the deal which will be introduced by an executive order order will limit what data us intelligence agencies can access when it's being sent from the eu to the us so essentially this is going to change um the amount of uh, data that the NSA and other agencies are able to access and will be quite a big reform in sort of US surveillance laws as well. So um, companies are hoping that this agreement gets put in place. Meta obviously wants it to be put in place before it has to make any of these potential changes. And it sort of hopes that all of these things will go away. Um, and essentially, yeah, this this political deal could change or usurp all of these sort of existing regulations decisions that have been made by by the regulators hooray so no spying no problem right so will this will this agreement just basically sort things out will it solve the issue politicians would like to say yes but they also said yes for the last two deals that they they created that have then been struck down by courts so i think that it really depends on the details of the specific agreement so while they've come out and said in a big overarching sweeping sort of idea that these reforms they're going to make will better protect people's data it sort of depends on the actual specifics of them and we already know like based on sort of um, how quickly uh, lawyers and sort of like privacy activists have challenged the the previous systems that have been put in place that there will almost certainly be a legal challenge to this new uh, system that is proposed unless the the changes in the us are so sweeping and, and big that essentially there is a, a huge change in what the nsa and stuff like that can get so it really depends on some of those details but everybody that i spoke to on this issue 
pretty much thinks there'll be a legal challenge relatively soon after uh, after it's enacted. So, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment and it's going to continue to stay that way. How does this affect us in the UK? Because obviously we've been talking about European regulation, which I assume only applies to EU countries now. Yeah, so since the UK left the EU recently, or a couple of years ago now, um, the government has been trying to strike deals uh, for data sharing with the EU and the US and a bunch of other different countries countries as well. So it came to one agreement with the EU last year, um, and I think the one with the US is is reaching ahead at the moment. So um, the UK government is positioning itself as uh, wanting to be able to allow data transfers to happen more freely so it can uh, encourage economic uh, growth and innovation and all of those things. Um, So I think that if there was, if you're looking about NSA, intelligence agency access to data specifically from the UK, I think that there could be a separate challenge uh, when some of those agreements are, are are essentially published about the uk and the us um but i think that yeah overall it's 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 a slightly different situation to a wider in the eu there's an interesting paradox here because obviously a lot of these regulations are designed to protect consumers in europe from the sort of monopoly power of big tech but all these regulations are doing one 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 kind of unintended side effect is that they're raising the bar to actually operate in europe to a really really high level that incumbent like smaller companies newcomers probably won't be able to meet right so you're almost entrenching the advantage that the likes of meta have got it's not just europe either like increasingly countries around the world are um looking at sort of like data localization (laughs) regulations which again while it sounds pretty boring and in many ways is pretty boring (laughs) um has a big impact on how Mm. companies work so um we've already seen in china for instance that uh, their laws there have to say that companies operating in the country have to store data locally so apple has built its own data centers and uh tesla's got its own data centers and stuff like that in europe and the ones that apple has had have uh, had to make compromises based on um sort of the chinese standards and that sort of is being applied in different countries around the world so india has been looking at data protection changes recently that would require local data to be stored within the country other countries are doing it as well and it's one way of sort of like uh, a soft power way in many ways of sort of like trying to dictate what how apps and services can run in an individual individual country and the information that they have to keep there and and follow local laws so it is something that does matter despite uh, being uh, a relatively dry subject no i think that's i think it's a really really interesting story and do let us know what you think and also whether you you know if, if facebook does have end up having to leave europe will you be sad to see us go let's see it go let us know podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week is about monkeypox the viral disease that's been gaining traction in europe and the us after years of being endemic in africa and efforts to distribute vaccines as the outbreak gets worse. Grace, what's the latest? So yeah, this monkeypox outbreak that's been kind of spreading slowly since May has kind of just reached a crisis point. So at the end of July, the WHO declared the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency of international concern, which is pretty much the biggest alarm Mm -hmm. bell that you can ring. So far, more than 31,000 cases, mostly traceable to sexual or skin-to-skin contact amongst men who have sex with men, have been detected in nearly 90 countries. Um, But the big thing is, there's no vaccine that has ever been designed for monkeypox. There's only a smallpox vaccine that has been approved by the European Medicines Agency and the FDA for preventing people from developing or transmitting the virus. So it was originally developed for smallpox, Mm -hmm. but it turns out we can actually use it for monkeypox too. It's called, uh, I think, Genios in the US. Uh, I'm going to butcher all of these. (laughs) Imavex in Europe and Imvamune in Canada. Uh, And it's made by this tiny Danish biotech company called Bavarian Nordic. 
and as you alluded to there, the company that makes this this vaccine that was originally intended for smallpox but also works for monkeypox is quite small and it's not really geared up for like a global outbreak. And in fact, there's only one factory that makes it at the moment and there's a problem with that factory. Yeah, it's almost uh, a laughable situation. <laughs> so yes, it's it's tiny. It's so small that they only made the vaccine to order. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a country would put in an order for like, you know, 200,000 doses and then they would make those for them and that was it. That's all they did. Mm-hmm. And so much so that they had actually closed their manufacturing facilities um, and they, they had been closed until very recently. They closed them in the spring of 2022 to focus on their other vaccine products, including vaccines for rabies and encephalitis. Um, so, you know, this is spring mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden there's these reports of a monkeypox outbreak and they obviously just have to be like, overnight be like, oh my God, we have yeah. to ramp up all of our production. Uh, the company had expected to reopen the facility in the third quarter of this year. So pretty much around this time um, and it is currently in the process of reopening but the company has said it won't be making any new doses until 2023 Uh, and on top of that the WHO has said there are around 16 million doses of this vaccine available right now so this company has 16 million doses but uh, which by by the WHO's estimate should be enough theoretically to contain the outbreak they've said we need about 5 to 10 million doses Mm -hmm. But there is a big snag. Uh, most of these doses are still in their bulk form, which means that they're just sitting frozen in large plastic bags at Bavarian Nordic's headquarters in near Copenhagen. Um, that means that they still need to be transferred into vials for use, which is a process known as fill and finish. And this process usually takes several months. That means that the WHO is reportedly in talks with other manufacturers who could potentially you know, chip in and speed up the process. But the thing with that as well is... Um, it's a you know a fairly specialized process. It's quite a delicate vaccine. It's it's a live vaccine, meaning it contains the live virus. Um, so that means that Bavarian Nordic would have to do this thing called a tech transfer, where they teach mm-hmm. uh, another manufacturer how to do that, and that that itself is what takes a long time. And there's one last hurdle. If there was if that wasn't enough, um, most of these doses have already been snapped up by the U.S. Uh, despite only a quarter of global cases being located in the Americas, with no deaths reported. So the US has bought up most of these doses, but hasn't actually done a particularly good job of distributing to its own citizens either. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just all a big shambles. So it does sound weird, I think, at first uh, glance that the US owns all of these doses. And there is a reason for that. Um, the US has been pretty much stockpiling any kind of uh, vaccine against smallpox for years um, in the case of uh, bioware warfare attack um but yeah like you said even though the u.s owns most of the current stock they haven't actually been able to secure a consistent supply of usable vaccines this has been in large part to just a bunch of bureaucratic fumblings um they've actually so in the first place they had bought 30 million doses of this vaccine over the past two decades However, the vast majority of these usable doses uh, actually just expired sitting in freezers because they only have a shelf life of about three years and the US never replaced them. Um, And so right now the country owns the equivalent of about 16.5 million doses in bulk form. but it, and it's been keeping a lot of them on ice while a method of freeze drying the vaccine was being developed. So when the monkeypox outbreak hit the US uh, a few months ago, it actually just had 2,400 doses that were usable, right. which I mean is wild. Um, and then there's been another of, a, a number of other errors. So in 2020, the US ordered 1.4 million usable doses of the vaccine from Bavaria Nordic. Yet this June, when the monkeypox outbreak was beginning to prof- uh, prof- 
uh, to spread across the country and the order was still outstanding. US authorities still dilly-dallied before requesting the company start fulfilling that request by uh, shipping over some 370,000 doses that were sitting ready in Denmark. So again, it's been sort of this combination of delay and uh, bureaucratic delay and then exactly. physical delay of actually making them. And then they still have got this challenge that you talked about of converting the stockpile into usable doses, this fill and finish thing. Yeah, so for the rest of the order, the bulk form of the vaccine did to be processed into usable doses. At a new fill and finish plant that Bavaria Nordic had completed in 2021. You know, they, I, I spoke to people at Bavaria Nordic and they were very pleased with themselves that they'd made this fill and finish plant. Yeah. Uh, but the problem was the FDA has very strict regu- regulations. So in order to be able to use those materials, the FDA had to actually go over to Copenhagen and approve this site. So this meant that on May 23rd, over 200,000 doses that could have gone towards fulfilling that US order uh, were instead delivered to European countries while the FDA were finishing up their inspection of the site. Um, but now the FDA has actually finally finished signing off the facility, which means that almost 800,000 doses have since been shipped to the US. Um, up to the middle of July, the US had also put in new orders for about 5 million more usable doses. Uh, but because of the tardiness earlier in the summer, by this point, other countries had already snapped up the existing supply of ready-to-use vaccines, which meant that the newly ordered usable doses can now only be delivered in 2023. Um, Bavaria Nordic has it, it expects to deliver nearly 7 million doses to the US throughout 2022 and 2023. Um, so, yeah, like I said, you know, the US should have had the, the advantage in this, but they pretty much just fumbled the bag. Yeah. Um, outside of the US, the European Commission has bought up about 160,000 doses for Europe, uh, the UK about 100,000 vaccine doses, although uh, it's been recently reported that the country looks like it's going to run out in the next two to three weeks, which, you know, is quite an alarming prospect. And then they're going to have a delay of about a month before the next supplies arrive in late September. Australia has bought uh, nearly half a million um, with 100,000 arriving this year and the remainder in 2023. So people are getting doses, but they're probably not enough to control outbreaks in their own country. From the reports I've been seeing in the news and on social media, it's been quite a chaotic process trying to for people trying to procure these vaccines. And this is a very a group of people that are very kind of motivated to get the vaccine. And in a lot of cases, it's not, it's not like COVID where there were people that were hesitant and things like that. So... Are there any other alternatives to this Bavaria Nordic vaccine that we've been talking about? Any other options that could fill in the gap before these new doses arrive? So, like, uh, there are other vaccines. um, And, uh, like, similar to Bavaria Nordic's one, they were originally developed for smallpox. Um, One of those is a vaccine called ACAM2000, which is a vaccine product protects against smallpox but it's associated with a bunch of downsides um it has some rare but pretty serious side effects uh especially in um you know vulnerable people like pregnant people or infants or immunocompromised people such as those uh who are living with hiv which obviously has a higher prevalence amongst men who have sex with men um administering it also requires special training it's quite a finicky process so um that means that it has a number of limitations and isn't quite the perfect substitute but uh even so some experts are advocating that this vaccine be be made available to those who you know are aware of these various side effects and can choose um, to take it anyway um, and especially considering especially in the US where they're sitting on a giant stockpile of about 100 million doses it, it kind of looks like our, a best case scenario for mm-hmm. that country um, alternatively Japan also has a smallpox vaccine that could be used against monkeypox called LC16 but it pretty much has the exact same side effects um, and the thing is with this Bavarian Nordic vaccine it 
you know, was developed for smallpox. They're like, okay, yeah, it could be used for monkeypox. But they they never they don't have any long term data right, on what yeah. that looks like. So it's kind of just you know a stand in substitute, a really shoddy substitute in this in the middle of this crisis. So it, while this is all happening, the WHO is like. Uh, hey, countries are using this vaccine. Could you also be, you know, collecting data on how this is working right. as you're doing that? Um, because we still don't actually know how effective this is. Um, the uh, WHO estimated that, like I said, we need about five to 10 million doses to keep the pre- uh, under control, which is fewer than what is available in bulk, but much more than what could quickly be given to people right now. Um, they're even talking about maybe just giving one dose of the Bavarian Nordic vaccine, which a uh, typical course is two doses. And in the US, they're even thinking of giving less than that, which, I mean, given that we still don't know how effective this vaccine is, really, I mean, it's, n- it's not a great scenario. It's hard to believe that we're sitting here in, you know, 2022 talking about vaccine supply for a disease that's kind of spreading across the globe. And there's, it's kind of maddening because with COVID, obviously, there wasn't a vaccine that existed at the start of the outbreak. So we had to wait for that to be made. But in this case, there's been a vaccine available. And the fact that, I mean, you mentioned how it's endemic in Africa and the fact that they closed the manufacturing plant for a disease that was already kind of widespread in, you know, a continent is kind of crazy. And it's a pattern that's starting to feel very familiar where vaccines are unevenly distributed yeah exactly so this uh this outbreak has been linked back to um the same outbreak that's been endemic in Africa since about 2017 um and you know like covid i mean are we even shocked at this point um it's the only continent that hasn't uh received any vaccine doses um the outbreak has been ongoing in parts of central and west africa for about five years now and 75 people are uh, suspected to have died from the virus um, and cases are on the rise in Nigeria. Um, and that death count is maybe even higher because mm. they have very limited testing surveillance capacity. Um, and from speaking to sources, they made the point that, you know, vaccine inequity is what got us to the point of this crisis. African scientists have been making noise about this outbreak um, for years, but they're pretty much ignored. Um, the African CDC uh, called for the continent to be prioritising the rollout of the vaccine. And the WHO has urged countries with vaccines to share that with those without, but you know urging is only going to get you so far that's going to be we're, we're relying on the goodwill of some countries which looking back at how they handled covid they were pretty bad mm-hmm. on that front um the who has said they will set up a vaccine sharing program but has pretty much released no information about how they're going to do that since um so that means that vaccines are just going to be this extremely scarce commodity in both high income and low income countries for the coming months um and failing to control the outbreak means that there's a risk that the virus could spill over and establish itself in new animal populations which is exactly what we don't want because that means it will become endemic in other countries mm. as well um and basically uh the takeaway from the story is that uh uh, what COVID and now uh, monkeypox has revealed is that tackling outbreaks as a domestic problem just does not work. Like some of the numbers here are really shocking and really just quite sad in a way. Like the fact that this has been endemic in Africa since 2017, yet the only manufacturer against plant in the world that makes a vaccine for it decided that it wasn't profitable to make the vaccine. The fact that we need five to 10 million doses to stop the outbreak as it stands now, presumably a much smaller number to have stopped it in 2017 exactly. in Africa. Yeah. All the while, the US has been sitting on a stockpile of 30 million doses that have yeah. gone off in freezers because it hasn't used them. Siphon off 10% of your smallpox vaccine doses, send it to Africa, and we yeah. can avoid this outbreak. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's a lot more monkeypox reporting at wired.com, including three possible futures for how the outbreak could spread or be contained in the next few years. Um, so do check that out and check out Grace's great reporting as well at wired.com. We just have time for some feedback. Um, so Victoria wrote in, 
a couple of weeks ago we were talking about um matt burgess story about the mystery of these cable internet cables getting cut outside paris i mentioned that it sounded like something um from a heist movie and then put out a slightly ill-advised call for people to join my heist team uh victoria has uh, signed up she's on the investigation team uh, i'm not sure that that means she's helping with the heist or investigating the heist i've definitely incriminated myself either way so thanks or no thanks victoria <laughs> for, for writing in uh, and we also got a bit of feedback from dave about your story grace yeah dave said that he really enjoyed my piece last week on uh uh, brain computer implants and he actually recommended a book uh, called Lock-In uh, by a sci-fi author called John Scalzi. Um, I actually shamefully have never heard of this book but it sounds absolutely fascinating. It's about a global flu pandemic that results in millions of cases of locked-in syndrome uh, which then props the rapid development of, of brain computer interfaces and full immersion telepresencing. Uh, I think it sounds fascinating and a global pandemic mixed with brain implants sounds like a horrifying mis- mishmash <laughs> of what I cover at Wired so yeah. I'll absolutely have to read it and Dave also said that he appreciates the work we do on the podcast consistently informative and interesting thank oh, you Dave thanks Dave that's very sweet and thank you for writing in both of you and if you do have any comments or questions or you know things you'd like to say about this episode or any of the other episodes we've done recently let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk and that is all we've got time for thanks for listening we'll see you next time goodbye bye bye, bye. bye.